Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 28, and we're going to look at the passage that you have just heard called a lie. That eulogy went on to say, as you heard, you can't just recite a passage, say a few Hail Marys, and wash away your sins. You shouldn't be able to. We should be required to carry around our sins for the rest of our years, all the pain and guilt too. We need to feel them so that we can do better next time, so we can be there next time someone screams for help. Now that statement contains some important and false assumptions. We're going to explore those as we compare it to our passage today. Now each week we provide an outline for the message. You should have gotten those on the way in at our entry doors. For those that are watching on live stream, you have an outline button next to your media player. And we're looking at a passage in Proverbs because we're in a series in that book. And now we're looking at the second major division that contains short, memorable wisdom sayings, what we normally think of when we think of Proverbs, and these are on various topics. Now, it's been two weeks for us because two Sundays ago was Mother's Day. And last week, we were treated to the preaching of Dr. Tim Miller of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary as we observed DBTS Sunday. As we return now to the wisdom of Proverbs, we need to ask the Lord for His help as we look at His Word. Let's go before the Lord. Father, again, we thank You for gathering us and now for quieting us before your word. We ask you to instruct us from your truth, help us to be open to it, desirous of making application of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we've seen that Proverbs says a number of things about how to live wisely in a number of areas, money, sex, power, communication, and discernment. But God's word recognizes that we will fail to live up to those standards and so it provides passages in Proverbs like chapter 28 and verse 13, which says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. And I say in your outline, first of all this, that the wise deal with sin. Failure to deal with our sin and instead attempting to sweep it under the rug has ill consequences. This is perhaps nowhere better illustrated than in the life of King David. Many of you will remember that while he was king, David committed multiple sins, including one, engaging sexually with a woman not his wife, who became pregnant with his child. He sought to conceal his sin by calling the woman's husband back from battle and encouraging him to spend some time with his wife in hopes that he would assume that the baby was his and so David's secret would be secure. But the man insisted on going back to the battlefield and so foiled David's initial plan. He then decided to have the husband, a man named Uriah, killed. And David married the woman, and now the eventual birth is going to look like it's on the up and up. But the baby died shortly after birth, causing David and the woman, Bathsheba, great sorrow, but not before David had been confronted regarding what he had done by a prophet of the Lord, and he finally stopped trying to hide. 
In fact, it's in the aftermath of all of that that David wrote Psalm 32, which we heard read earlier. Having come to his senses and facing his sin squarely, David says of his experience, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Notice that failing to deal with his sin had physical effects on him. My bones wasted away. My strength was sapped. Friends, if you fail to deal with your past, your past will certainly deal with you. If you fail to deal with your past, your past will most certainly deal with you. It's a small book by a man named Steve Byers by the title, Putting Your Past in Its Place. And I recommend for any who are carrying around some burden or some sin from the past that you perhaps read that book. I believe we have it in our resource center. Now, this is in one way good news, though, that David felt the way he did as a result of his sin because it means that throughout the time he was hiding his sin, he was still aware of it and he cared about it. It affected him. In other words, it means he still had a conscience. And that's not a guarantee for everybody that they maintain a conscience because it's possible to go so long in indifference to sin that the conscience erodes and the Bible says that can result in consciences that have been seared as with a hot iron. So one who is guilty may not feel like it. They may have a seared conscience been eroded over time. In the Chicago PD eulogy, he said we need to feel our sins. But there are a couple of problems with placing too much emphasis on emotion as it relates to our sins. One, whether we personally and subjectively feel guilty when we sin does not change at all the fact that we objectively are guilty. Whether we individually, personally, subjectively feel like we're guilty, when we sin doesn't change at all the fact that objectively we are guilty before God. Secondly, when we commit sinful acts, we can feel it in a sinful way. We can feel guilty about it in a sinful sort of way. That's why the Bible speaks of two kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. One commentator has said, godly sorrow manifests itself by repentance and the experience of divine grace. Worldly sorrow brings death because instead of being God-centered sorrow over the wickedness of sin, it's self-centered sorrow over the painful consequences of sin. So don't make too much of the feeling bit. We are guilty objectively whether we feel it or not. And the Bible is saying sometimes you can feel it in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. Simply because of the consequences, not the offense against God. The wise deal with sin. And I say in your outline, they do so before God. And that's because sin is always first against God before it's ever against anyone else. No matter who may have been harmed, 
However greatly we may have harmed them, our first and greatest offense in the act is always against God. No one commits adultery with another person without first having committed adultery against God. No one murders another person first, at least in that moment, without having banished God from their thoughts as if he's non-existent. No one lies to another person without in that moment first thinking dishonestly before God. Sin is always first against God before it's against anyone else. And David came to recognize that, and he wrote yet another psalm about his sins of adultery and murder. In a moment, I'm going to read what he said, but before I do, just remember all of the people against whom David sinned. He sinned against his own wife as he committed adultery with another woman. He sinned against Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, the woman with whom he committed adultery. Not only did he take another man's wife to cover it up, he had the man killed. He sinned against Bathsheba by taking her. As king, this was the ultimate power mismatch. And then as king, he sinned against the nation because according to God's law, the king is to be a moral example to the people. And yet, although he sinned against all of those people, here's what David said. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David says, with all of that, sinning against Bathsheba, sinning against Uriah, sinning against the nation, ultimately and firstly, it is God against whom I've sinned. And it's as though nothing else matters. Those victims do matter. But it's as though none of them matter. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. In that Chicago PD eulogy, there's no mention of God at all. As if the most important person sinned against is another human being. And important though that is, it's never most important. The words of Proverbs 28.13 are, as is all of the book of Proverbs, based on the foundation that's laid in its opening chapters and especially the first chapter that provides the context for everything that follows in the book of Proverbs. The seventh verse of the book of Proverbs says this famously, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So when you read something 28 chapters later, like we are, 2813, that's supposed to be in mind that the Lord is central to all of it. So in verse 13, you could rightly read it this way, explicitly including the Lord because it's implicit in the context. Whoever conceals their sins from the Lord does not prosper. But the one who confesses to the Lord and renounces them finds mercy from the Lord. In fact, in six passages in the Old Testament, you find this Hebrew phrase that's translated in verse 13, the one who confesses. And in those, it means to confess sin, now get this, to confess sin as part of praising God. To confess sin as part of 
praising God. For example, 1 Kings chapter 8. In praying to the Lord, when your people Israel have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, that's the phrase, confess before the Lord, the one who confesses, give praise to your name. Then hear, Lord, from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. That phrase, give praise to your name, is literally confess your name in the context of admitting sin. In fact, some English translations have it that way. When your people Israel have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and confess your name, praise your name, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. So in these passages, confessing means give God public praise and glory by acknowledging one's need of his forgiveness and deliverance from sin. This involves at least three things, and I have them in your outline. The wise deal with sin before God because first, he knows all. When we confess rather than conceal, it is to God's praise because we're acknowledging that He's omniscient. He knows all. And we cannot hide anything from Him. You've perhaps heard the phrase, you can run, but you can't hide. It goes back to a famous, at the time, the most famous uh, boxing match ever between Detroit's own Joe Lewis after which the now-gone Joe Louis Arena and the fist. You guys have seen the fist? That's Joe Louis's fist. Joe Louis and a guy named Billy Kahn. And Billy Kahn was very quick. And the question to Joe Louis was, how are you going to catch him? And his reply was, he can run, but he can't hide. But of course, before the eyes of an all-knowing God, that's true as well. Now, who would try to hide from an all-knowing God? It started quite early, friends, with our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they had committed the first human sin. The Bible says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Think about the foolishness here. He'll never never find us here. How will God know where we are? And see, it's much more tragic if you take a close look at that that verse. When it says they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking, it's written in such a way as to say they were familiar with this sound. This was something that they did regularly. They heard God coming. And they would commune with God. They would have fellowship with God. That's how they knew it's God. But now, having sinned, instead of fellowship with God, They're separated from God, and they're hiding from God. The presence of God, after the entrance of sin into the human race, God's presence has now become traumatic for us. I have a book on my shelf called The Trauma of Transparency, and it comes from the Garden of Eden. We're no longer transparent with God. We're no longer transparent with one another. We hide, and we've done it so long becomes natural to do the siding. And so we can't talk about religion, we're told. One thing you never talk about is religion. Hiding. Because it's, quote, a personal, private matter. 
fact, people use religion itself to hide from the truth about how deep our estrangement from God is. If I can just do some things, if I can just go through some motions, then I'll be able to overcome this guilt and this alienation that I feel. So what all does God know about you, friend? And in particular, what all does God know about your sin? The confessional booth, where one is assigned penance to do. Many of you may be familiar with that. But the idea is you go to this booth, there's a priest who's been authorized by the church to hear your confession and then assign your penance to you. That can only deal with the things you know, that you know and that you've done. But have you ever considered that we sin in ways we don't know? And we don't think about, so I can't come in and say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned because you don't know what you don't know. And therefore, we can't individually confess to a priest in a confessional or anywhere else. And then when we do make a list, it's a list of things we've done. But what about the sins of desire? We didn't actually do anything. Or the sins of thought or words? And what about sins of omission rather than sins of just commission? Not just the things you commit and carry out, but the things that you were supposed to carry out that you omitted, that you didn't. Failing to desire and think and speak and act as God requires. And the Bible says that too is sin. If anyone knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is for sin for them. You see, friends, sin is not first in what we do. It's foundationally in who we are. Sin is who we are. We tend to think that we're sinners because we sin. But the truth biblically is this. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because that's our nature. That's what we do. So we sin so pervasively. In fact, with every breath that someone steals from God's atmosphere, that they use for other than His glory, every single drawing of breath is sin against God. So that trying to count sin is absolutely hopeless, and the truth is then there's no way we can make up for it. So what's our hope? Well, stay with me. The wise deal with sin before God because He knows all, and I say in your outline, outline because He judges all. So if our sin is innumerable, and it's not first against others but against God, then what is the appropriate punishment? What's the appropriate payment? What is the appropriate punishment for sin against an infinitely holy God? How long would it take to make restitution to God? The one to whom we are mainly in spiritual debt. Now again, the eulogy on the video we saw doesn't mention God and also assumes that the years of our lives are sufficient to pay for whatever sins we've committed because it's only about what we've done to others. 
Since an eternal God is not at issue, then eternal punishment's not even considered. But if all sin is against God, and if it's infinite in cost, and the offense remains until it's been atoned for, how long will we be judged? For how long will we have to pay? Friends, that's the basis for what the Bible teaches as eternal punishment in hell. Because it takes forever and a day to pay for it ourselves. Counting sin is impossible, and paying for sin takes forever. So what's our hope? Stay with me. The wise deal with sin before God because he knows all, because he judges all, and I say in your outline, he forgives all. Since he is the one that we've sinned against, then we go to him for forgiveness. We confess to him. But it cannot be forgiven until it's paid for, until justice has been done. We can never meet the demands of God's justice, so unless there's another way, we pay forever. Unless there's another way, our sentence is forever. But in that testimony of King David, in Psalm number 32 that was read earlier, he says something at the very beginning of that psalm that I asked Dr. Combs to omit so that I could talk about it now. Here's how Psalm 32 begins. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. You cannot cover your sins. You cannot conceal your sin. But there is a way that they can be covered, all of them. The ones we know, the ones we don't know, those that are of commission and those that are of omission, those that are of desire and thought and speech and act, and those that are failing to want and think and talk and behave as we ought. ought. Every last one of them. Now how? Payment has to be made. How is this payment going to be made? The Bible says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God says, this matter of sin against me is so heinous and so dire that it requires life in order to pay for it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, think about this. Given how ubiquitous our sin is now, how innumerable it is, given that, how many animals would one need to sacrifice? And for how long? The video that we saw earlier assumes that we can wash away our sins. It said, quote, you can't just recite a passage. Just say a few Hail Marys and wash away your sins. The implication is you can atone for your sins, but it takes more than just those things. It, it requires more than just those things, in fact, from you. You can do it. You just have to do enough. Except that would take forever and more. So what? And God says, here's the solution. 
and the only solution. Other than you paying it for yourself forever. The only solution is that I initiate payment for you. And the good news of the gospel is that God has sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could not. And so the book of Romans speaks of it this way. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Atonement, a sacrifice of covering. You can't cover, but the blood of Jesus does. And in so doing, satisfies in that atonement the holy anger of God at sin, but poured out on Him on the cross rather than on you. Him who alone could pay it because He alone was perfect. This is God come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Now notice how it's received. It says to be received by faith, that is by believing. It's not received by doing, it's not received by working because you can't do enough, but believing what He, Christ, did for you. So the next chapter in the book of Romans says this, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, their faith, their believing is credited as righteousness. Now let's just unpack that for a moment. Justifies, a legal courtroom term that means to declare righteous. God, the righteous judge, declares the guilty to be righteous. Even though, notice what the verse says, God justifies, that is, declares to be righteous, but notice who he declares to be righteous, the wicked. So it's not that you cleaned up your act and then you came to God and then God said, okay, I'll declare you righteous because you got close enough. No, you're still wicked when this happens. You're still a sinner, and He declares you to be righteous, even though still in your sin. And you're believing the basis of that, namely in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice of atonement and His perfect life, is credited, counted, considered by God to be your righteousness. So that God then, for the one who believes in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, now sees us not through our sin, but through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Jesus lived, of course, before he died, and he lived perfectly. And that perfectly righteous life is counted to you and me when we believe we need it, and we acknowledge that we believe he provides it. And in that very chapter, Romans chapter 4, the next, the following verse, I'm going to put on the screen in a moment. The Apostle Paul, who wrote it, quotes none other than Psalm 32, saying this. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And now here, notice it's in quotes, because it's quoting from the first part of the Bible, Psalm 32, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It's quoting Psalm 32 in the New Testament to say Jesus is the payment in full that provides the blessed state of complete pardon for all who ask. 
So how do I get all my sin forgiven? I don't even know how many sins I have. I can't count them. How do I get them all forgiven? By the sacrifice of Jesus. That's how you achieve this blessed state. Because of him. And so the Bible says this, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. Now notice this phrase, he forgave us all our sins. All our sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, he forgave. When he declares you righteous in Jesus, when he justifies you, there is now nothing that can come eternally between you and God. Nothing in the future. No one and no thing. And so you've got to lose the idea that, many people have, that I come to Jesus, but then after that, we'll see if I make it to heaven. Listen, if you've come to Jesus and you've been justified, then there's no chance that you will not go to heaven. There's nothing that can keep that from happening. We'll have opportunity for you to ask then for that forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus provides in just a bit. The wise deal with sin. They do it before God and they do so by repentance. So we must come to the Lord, the one who is the first that every sin is against, and we confess that word confess is used in a number of ways in Scripture. One of them is a word that literally means to say the same thing. Confess, say the same thing. That is, say the same thing God does about who we are and our offense against His holy character. Ask His forgiveness, and in gratitude for what He's done, we do what verse 13 says. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them Find mercy, finds mercy. The renouncing is what we mean by repentance. It says, Lord, I don't even know all the ways that I sin, but I don't want to sin at all because I love you. And I love you because you first loved me and gave yourself on the cross for me. So by your grace, I'm going to go your way rather than my way. To repent. The word literally means a change of mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And When this happens, when you come to God through Jesus Christ, believing His life and His death on your behalf, and He declares you to be righteous, now in your position before God, you got all this amazing stuff declared perfectly righteous. I've now been adopted into his family. I'm a child of God, and God does not disinherit his children. So you've got all of this, having come to him in your position, but then there's still your experience. <laughs> there's your position in how God sees you. You're perfect through Jesus. You're my child forever. And then there's your experience as a fallen person in a fallen world, and you still sin and struggle with sin, as do I. But friends, that is not the basis of our eternal security. That's not the basis of our relationship with God for eternity. We have a change of position, and in our experience, we want to gradually be changed as well. So we have this change of position, and we're given eternal life, but it makes a difference in how we live now. And so we renounce, we go a different direction. 
The wise deal with sin. And lastly, the wise avoid sin. Verse 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Verse 14, Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. That is, verse 14 is saying, The best thing for all of us to do is first, Believe the perfect life and death of God the Son, Jesus Christ, is what we need and ask for it. And as we've seen, it means that He covers every sin of thought, word, and deed, sins of commission and omission, and so we're guaranteed heaven and not hell. And then the question may arise, well, then why should I live differently since the verdict's in? I'm going to heaven already, right? We live differently not to get to heaven, but out of gratitude that God has given us a relationship with Himself. Because we now love Him, we want to please Him, and so avoid sin in the first place. And so in the video, we're told we should be made to feel our sin all our lives so that we do better next time. See, friends, what makes us do better next time is not feeling our guilt, but exulting in our Savior. Yes, remember your past sin. Yes, deal with the present struggle of sin. Yes, we may still be dealing with the consequences of what we've done. All of that causes sorrow, but it's a sorrow, hear this, a sorrow overwhelmed by joy. And that's why those who are theologically astute and they think about these matters and have written about them say things like the songwriter said, O love divine, O matchless grace, that Christ should die for men. With joyful grief, I lift my praise, abhorring all my sin, adoring only Him. Notice the joyful grief. Yes, in a fallen world, you can't avoid sadness, regret for sin. But that regret, that sadness, that grief should be overwhelmed by joy regularly, joyful grief. One author has said this, Christians are the saddest, most celebratory people on earth. Sad because of sin. Celebratory because of what Jesus has done with our sin. And that's what motivates us to avoid sin, the joy of knowing Christ and what He has done for us. When David sinned, as we've seen, and when we sin in any way, in those moments at least, we are not loving God. And Solomon, who wrote these words in Proverbs for us, knew these consequences firsthand because you see, this David was his father. We sometimes forget that. But 84% of the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, son of none other than King David. David was his father, and the woman with whom David committed adultery was Solomon's mother. David confessed his sin in Psalm 51, and he talked about how miserable he was when he tried to hide it in Psalm 32. And his son heard those stories, and he read those psalms like we have, and now he instructs us, based on his experience, there is forgiveness for sin, but it's best not to go there in the first place. Here's your take-home truth. We take sin seriously. We take it seriously because we take God seriously. 
You ever get anybody at a eulogy or anyplace else talking about what you have to do to cover sin and they don't invoke God first? You've got the wrong definition. We take sin seriously because we take God seriously. Now we're going to go to the Lord in prayer in just a bit. And those who have come to God through Jesus Christ and have this declared righteousness applied to you, this adoption being brought into his family, let's thank God profoundly for that and ask us to live in a way that's consistent with the position that he's given us. But for those of you that are here and you have never heard the good news of the gospel, I presented it to you as clearly as I can. And it's now for you to receive. It's now for you to believe. It's now for you to acknowledge when we bow in just a moment in prayer that you are a sinner, that you can't count your sin, you can't cover your sin, only God can do this. Can you admit your sin? Can you admit your sin in an ongoing way? Not just initially, but as you desire to grow and put it aside gradually so that you become more like Jesus. Hear this, we cannot admit sin when we do not fully appreciate God's grace and do not adequately care about God's glory. Let me say it again. We cannot admit sin when we do not fully appreciate God's grace and do not adequately care about God's glory. Here's what I mean by that. We reveal we are in some way in a work system mindset rather than grace given by God. So we need to think we're better than we are. And so we can't admit our sin, we can't confess it. And or, we're not concerned about our unchanged life and the fact that it leaves God's glory and His character veiled before His world. And both of those, friends, are things that should never be true of us. We care about the grace of God given in Jesus. We care about the glory of God, the character of God, showing forth as we, by God's grace, live like Jesus. So... We're going to bow before the Lord, as we do. Thank God if you've come to Him through Jesus Christ. If not, realize you're the sinner we're talking about here. We all are. Recognize Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, and His perfect life that preceded that made His death on the cross acceptable to God the Father as payment in full. Repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you by your grace. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's bow together. Father, again, we thank you for gathering us and then giving us your word to instruct us. We thank you for this precious passage in the book of Proverbs that gives us the good news about how it is that we have a relationship with you. Lord, we find so many ways to conceal our sin, to fail to come clean about the enormity of our sin, the eternality of the consequence of our sin. I pray that in this sacred moment, you are breaking up stony hearts so that they are soft toward you and willing to see themselves as you say all of us are. And as a result of seeing our hopeless state outside of Jesus Christ, throwing ourselves at his feet and saying, Lord, you are the one that provides the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue that I need. And so I ask you to save me, forgive me on the basis of the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I give my life to you. I follow you with my life. And for those of us for whom you have done that, for me, 
40 years ago. Lord God, thank you for giving me a position as your child in your family, for giving me the guarantee of eternal life with you, not because of me, but only because of you, and giving me the joy of being gradually conformed to the image of the one who loved me first. Go with us this week, then, as we serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.